0: Hey, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's podcast. I hope that it encourages you and inspires you, and I also hope that it challenges you. And I want you to know that we are in our year in the greatest commandment, looking at this great commandment from Jesus to love God and to love people. And so I hope more than anything that this encourages you to love God and to love the people around you in a more holistic way. I also hope that you have some people around you to talk through some of these things with, and if you don't, we would love to see you at one of our Sunday gatherings or in one of our Restore groups. You can get all that information on our website at restoreaustin.org. I hope you enjoy the message. Thanks. Uh, I told you all a few weeks ago that um, this painting right here sits on the mantle in my house. Um, Amy got it for me a while back as a present, um, and it's, it's been up there a few months, but I still find myself probably twice a week stopping to look at it, to take it in. And the, the big themes, when I look at it, they're, they're always present. Eve holding the forbidden fruit, right? She's afraid to let it go, afraid of what it means. It represents her decision and Adam's decision to turn their backs on God. You have the serpent around Eve's ankles there, representing the, the evil that kind of shackles her. You have Mary's pregnant belly, right, where the promised Savior, Jesus Christ, waits to be born. Mary's foot on the head of the serpent, fulfilling the promise of God to Eve and Adam that one of Eve's offspring would crush the head of evil someday. Those big things, I I always see them, but when I stop and I look, I'm telling you, almost every single time I do, something brand new or something I haven't noticed in a long time catches my eye. Like Eve's face, she's so downcast. She can't even bring herself to look Mary in the eye because of what she's done. Mary's right hand on Eve's face, picking it up, helping her look up, helping her know that the guilt and the shame that she feels right now won't always be there. Mary's left hand pulling Eve's left hand to her abdomen so Eve can feel the promised Messiah moving and kicking in her belly. But I think my very favorite part, the whole thing, is Mary's little smile. If you look really closely, you can just see it. It's this this wry, almost knowing smile. It's so subtle that you almost have to be looking for it to see it. It's as if she knows that even though it seems like everything is falling apart now, it won't always be like that. You see, she knows the Savior of the world is coming, and that's enough to make her smile just a little bit in the midst of some broken things. Today is the fifth and final week of our series that we've been calling He First Loved Us. It's based on this premise that if we want to love God and love others and thus fulfill the greatest commandment from Jesus, it all starts with embracing the love that God has for us. Now, it also means understanding that this love isn't just something God does, it's actually who he is. 1 John 4 tells us that God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. We love because he first loved us. That's kind of been our central passage of Scripture throughout this entire series. We've referenced it every single week as we've taken a journey through the biblical story, and we've looked and we've traced the unwavering love that God has for us. Starting way back before the foundation of the earth and then moving all the way up until today when we're talking about Jesus laying his life down. It started back with Eve and her husband Adam. Adam who were created out of the perfect love of God. You see, that love and God himself have existed for all time. He has no beginning or no end. And, and even Adam, and you know, the first humans, were birthed out of that love, and then they were invited back into it. But many of you know the story, or you kind of inferred it from the painting we just showed, that they chose not to do that. They chose to turn their backs on the love of God, and they chose instead to give in. To the influence of evil represented by the serpent, the promise of Satan for power and health and wholeness apart from God. And when that happened, when humanity gave in to the influence of evil, we inadvertently opened the door for all of evil's effects as well, shame and guilt, sin and loss, and then the ultimate pain of evil, and that's death. But even on their worst day, God's love doesn't give up on humanity. Adam and Eve are still, even after turning their backs on God, invited back into God's love, invited back into God's family, and offered the fullness of that love. And then even further, they're given a promise that day, a promise that a Savior will come from Eve's offspring, and that that Savior will crush evil once and for all. That's why Mary smiles in this painting. She knows that the promise of God is being fulfilled by the Savior in her belly. She knows that her God, who is love, has put on flesh and come to earth to fulfill the promise he made to Adam and Eve. He will crush the head of evil and he will fix the brokenness it has caused. And that's exactly what he does. He spends his life on earth making all the wrong things right, again, fixing the effects and the brokenness of evil in our world. If you're familiar with the Bible, you know that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record accounts of Jesus' life. And those books are filled to the brim with stories of Jesus healing the sick, giving sight to the blind feeding the hungry, setting slaves free, making the marginalized feel seen and loved, confronting oppressive religious leaders, and even forgiving sins. Think about it like this. Jesus' life is him hacking a new path for mankind through the overgrown jungles of sin and evil in our world. He's making a new way. But it's the path we were originally meant to go down. You see, Jesus shows us how the human life is meant to be lived, choosing to find his identity and who God says he is and relying on the spirit to guide him moment by moment. One of the coolest examples of Jesus kind of forging this new path through the overgrowth of sin in the world is the story of him being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Some of you know this story, you've been around church for a while. When we look closely at this story, we see that it is a replaying of Adam and Eve in the garden being tempted by the serpent. You see, evil comes to tempt Jesus, offering him power just like he offered it to Adam and Eve. But unlike Adam and Eve, Jesus chooses the love of God, chooses to trust him instead of giving in to the influence of evil. And by doing so, Jesus shows us A new and better way to be human. I love how the Catholic priest, Father John Kiley, puts it. He says, the wilderness of Jesus' temptations truly was a new Eden, a new beginning, a new start towards a life of fidelity for Jesus and toward lives of faith, obedience, and fulfillment for all who would heed and follow Christ's gospel. You see, by living his life completely dependent on God, Jesus shows us God's intention for humanity. By spending his time on earth battling evil and fixing the brokenness it causes, Jesus shows us the depth of God's love for his kids. But I want you to know that Jesus is way more than just an example of God's design for humanity. And he's way more than just a picture of God's love for us. You see, Jesus is God with skin on. That's why for thousands of years, people have used the phrase God in Christ as a synonym for Jesus. This may sound insignificant, but it's actually incredibly important, especially as we come to the end of Jesus's life. And that's how we're going to conclude our He First Loved Us series this morning, by looking at the end of Jesus's life. Matt said this earlier when he was praying. It is the single greatest display of love in history, the death and resurrection of God in Christ. John 15, 13 tells us that there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. No greater love. If you've been in church even for a little while, chances are you've heard people talk about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It's kind of the central theme for the Christian faith. It's what Easter is all about every year. But I bet most of us, even if we've been in church for a long time, haven't heard it through the lens of 1 John chapter 4. Remember, this is the chapter where we have our central scripture we've used throughout this entire series. But today, as we bring it to a close, I want to look at more than just that central passage. I want to look at the whole thing. So if you have your Bible or your phone, tablet, anything like that, you want to follow along, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. The verses will also be on the screen if you don't have that. John starts out like this. He says, dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Okay, let's stop here. God is love. We've talked about this through the whole series. It's not just something that he does, although that's certainly true. He does love, but it's more than that. Love isn't just what God does. Love is who he is. How do we know? He keeps going. Verse 9. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Now listen to this. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Listen, Jesus is how we know God is love. God in Christ is how we know God is love. God in Christ putting on flesh, coming to earth, forging a new way to be human, battling against the forces of evil, fixing the brokenness caused by sin, and ultimately laying his life down. That is how we know that this is true, that God is love. Now, these two verses we just read, 9 and 10, are really what the whole passage kind of hinges on. So I want to take a minute, and I want to show you two really amazing things that we often miss in this passage. And we actually we often miss them because there's such a gap between our context and culture and the first century context and culture. So I want to explore that a little bit. These two things. Sorry, I think I sat on my mic. So two things. You may know that In the New Testament of the Bible, where 1 John 4 is located, it's originally written in Greek. That's the language of this time and place in the first century. So the first thing I want to show you is that in our English Bibles, right, the verses we just read, it looks like not that we loved God but that he loved us uses the word loved in the exact same way two times, right? It just says loved and loved just twice right there. But in Greek, the two words are actually in different tenses. Now, my wife was an English major, so she already knows what that means, but the rest of you do not, including me, so I had to look it up. We loved God, the part about our love, is in the perfect tense, meaning that our action of love was already completed in the past, it may or may not be completed again in the future. So a better translation would be, we have loved God, but he loved us. Talking about God's love for us is in what's called the aorist tense, which means that God's love for us is constant. It is past, present, and future, eternal and unchanging. Let me put it another way. Our love for God is fickle. It's based on how we're doing. It's based on our circumstances, how we're feeling that day. God's love could not be more different than that. God's love for us is based on who He is, that He is love. It has no beginning, no end. He loves us without qualification or exception. He has loved us. He does love us. He will always love us. Isn't that beautiful? Something we often miss because of the, the difference. That's the first amazing thing. The second thing is a little bit more obvious. Jesus is called an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And if you have some church background, chances are you've heard a phrase like this before, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. You may even be familiar with various atonement theories that surround the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, if you aren't familiar with that, this idea of atonement theories can be a little inaccessible, that kind of language, right? It can feel like a little much. But really, it's just a way to explain what happened when Jesus died and was resurrected and and why he did it. That's what atonement theories are. I'm just trying to figure out why did he do this and what really happened when he did. So the key word here is atonement. And as I said a moment ago, to understand what it means, we have to start by looking at it in its original context, culture, and language. So the Greek word here for atonement is halosmos. It's only used one other time in the entire Bible. And that's a few pages before in this same book by John, 1 John chapter 2. He says, "My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning, that's it. Halosmos. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world." So it's only used two times in the whole Bible. And both times it's used inside of this same phrase. Jesus is called an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Well, the cool thing about this is that even though it's only used twice in the Bible, this is actually a word that the original readers and the original audience would have been super familiar with. Because it was used a ton outside of the Bible and it was used in pagan religions. So almost every other religion in the first century talked about halosmos, talked about atonement if you were here last week or you listened online, you heard Bonnie Lewis teaching about how Jesus and the biblical authors often took something familiar to their audience and turned it on its head. That is exactly what is happening here. I want you to listen to how New Testament scholar Kenneth Woost describes it. He says, The pagan worshiper brought gifts to his God to appease the God's wrath and make him favorable in his attitude towards him. But the God of Christianity needs no gifts to appease his wrath and make him favorable towards the human race. Divine love springs spontaneously from his heart. I love that. Divine love springs spontaneously from his heart. Love is not just something God does. Love is who he is. This is the picture of God we have throughout the entire Bible, but it's especially clear through God in Christ. John just said it. This is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved Us. Now, before John used it here, Halosmos or atonement in the pagan religions was always associated with sacrifice to appease an angry deity who was so upset with humanity that it needed to pour out its wrath on someone, lest it pour out its wrath on all of humanity. Does that make sense? So this pagan deity, this this other god, was so mad at humans. So upset with the world that humanity created or or that it wasn't serving, that humanity wasn't serving it in all the right ways. And it was so mad that it had to be brought this sacrifice so they could pour out all its anger on this single representative sacrifice to prevent it from pouring out its anger on all humanity and wiping everyone out. That is the pagan understanding of atonement. Now, tragically, because they had no rights in this culture, this someone who was the representative for the pagan deity was often a young woman or child. And it was only after this deity could exhaust its anger on this young woman or child that it could calm down enough to not wipe out the whole human race. Horrific, right? Awful. Well, over the last hundred years or so, this horrific Pagan understanding of atonement has infested major parts of Christianity, especially in the West. We have made God into this monster who is so angry with humanity that he kills his own son in the most painful way possible in order to just exhaust his wrath and calm down enough not to destroy us all. I'm not here for it anymore, to be honest. I'm, I'm done with that. I'm done with us ascribing pagan deity characteristics to our God who is love. God is love. And just in case you were wondering what love looks like, it looks like God in Christ who came to save us even when we turned our backs on him. You see, our God, who is love, could not be farther from the monster God who demanded human sacrifice in order to make him like humanity again. This is love. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us. And not just one time in the past or hopefully in the future. He has loved us. He is loving us. And he will always love us. So what are the biblical authors doing when they use this familiar word, halosmos, to describe what happened on the cross? I think that they're turning it on its head. I think that they're taking this familiar concept of these pagan religions and they're flipping it around. They are contrasting the character of God with a pagan God. Pagan gods hate humanity, but our God loves humanity. Pagan gods require human sacrifice, but God in Christ sacrifices himself. But I think my favorite contrast of all is around God's wrath. Because listen, don't misunderstand me. Our God is often moved to righteous anger. We have the story, right, of Jesus. If you're familiar with it, he goes into the temple, uh, like, kind of area right outside the temple. He starts flipping the tables over because they were selling things, and he says, you've made my father's house a a den of robbers. He didn't do that because he was bored. He did that because he was mad, right? Our God is often moved to righteous anger, but what we so often miss is the object of his anger, what he's mad at. For some inexplicable reason, many of us have adopted the pagan concept that he is mad at us, that he hates humanity, and that in order to bring himself to love humanity again or to forgive humanity, he has to exhaust his wrath on something else. It's just simply not what the Bible says. The Bible says, this is love, not that we loved him, but that he loved us, that he has always loved us, that he will always love us. So if he's not mad at us, what's he mad at? He's mad at the serpent. Put that picture back up. He's mad at the evil that entangles us. He's mad at the sin that we've chosen to place ourselves in. He's mad at them because they're hurting us. God's wrath is reserved for evil and sin represented all the way back at the beginning of the biblical story by the serpent. The cross is God in Christ fulfilling his promise to crush evil and wash away the effects of sin. Stay with me on that. The cross is God in Christ fulfilling his promise to Eve and Adam, to crush sin and wash away all the effects of evil. Yes, God is angry. He's not angry at you. He loves you. He's angry at evil, and he's angry at sin. And let me tell you why he's so angry at them. He's angry at them because they are hurting his kids. I remember one of the very first times I saw something really hurt one of my kids. Some of you guys were here, and you remember about this. It was was January of 2016, and it was actually the Sunday of our last preview service, we would launch Restore February of 2016, about a month later. It was our last preview service, and we'd put so much time and effort into it, and I was so exhausted, and we go back home, and I'm sitting on the couch, and (sighs) Judah's about 13, 14 months old, and he's napping in the other room. We were in this little one-bedroom apartment, and he's napping in the other room, and Amy and I are watching TV, and I remember Amy saying, I think we should go check on Judah. He's been, he's been sleeping for a while. And I was like, nah, it's, it's been a big day. Like, let's not wake him up. I'm tired. Like, let's just watch TV. So, like, she's like, all right, all right. Five minutes later, she's like, I'm going to go check on him. I just, I just feel like I need to go check on him. And she walks into the room, and he is having this grand mal seizure in his crib. I thought I could talk about it, actually. And she screams, and I run in there. I pick him up, he's seizing in my arms, and she says, we got to call 911, and I say, no, there's a, it's a fire station around the corner, we'll, we can get him there faster, and so I run him down three flights of stairs, put him in the car, hand him to Amy, and I drive a million miles an hour to the fire station, and in the car, while we're holding him, his eyes roll back, and, and he just goes totally stiff, I, I thought he was dead, for sure. And we get to the fire station, and hand him to the fireman and I collapse on the floor and I'm just weeping and wailing. And I remember that my primary emotion was anger. I was so mad. I was so mad that something could be hurting my little boy He's 14 months old. They put him in the back of the ambulance. They start to work on him, and, and he, I hear a little cry from him. He starts breathing again. And they take off to Dell Children's, and I follow behind in the car. And I, I was like screaming at God in the car. i was so mad. How could you let this happen? How could you let him be hurt like this? He got diagnosed with Febrile seizures, which are basically seizures in little kids when they have fever and they get really hot and their central nervous system can't handle it and so they seize. And so that was the last really big one he had. We've been able to regulate it over the years and I think he's pretty close to outgrowing it now, which is really beautiful. They do it about five or six years old. But I'm telling you that I have never been angry like that in my life, ever. I was so mad, so mad that something was hurting my child. If you're a parent in here, you know the anger that rises up when you see something hurting your kids. And even if you're not a parent, you know how angry you get when you see something hurting someone you love most. This is how God feels when he watches us hurt by evil and sin, even when we choose it for ourselves. That's how he feels. My friend Jonathan Merritt was here at Restore last summer preaching on the importance of spiritual and biblical words and when he spoke about the word sin, here's what he said. God hates sin, not because God is an angry rule maker but because God loves us without constraint and God wants us each of us, to live the abundant life. God wants peace for us. God wants shalom for us. He wants us to flourish. He wants us to recognize the image of God in others and support their flourishing. Any resistance, any force that resists the abundant life is called sin, and this is a force to which God stands opposed. This is something that makes God angry. Jonathan is echoing the words of Jesus here. John chapter 10, Jesus is talking about evil and sin and he calls them a thief. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. I want to break this down for us super simply and super linear so that we will never let the pagan concept of atonement creep back into our hearts and minds. Here's the first thing. God's not mad at you. It breaks his heart to see you get hurt and to choose things that hurt you, but he is not mad at you. Number two, he's mad at sin and evil. God's not mad at you. He's mad at sin and evil. Number three, he's mad at them because they are hurting you. And I'm telling you this, whether you've chosen them or not, he is still mad at them if they are hurting you. Number four, he came to crush them because he loves you so much. Does that make sense? God's not mad at you. He's mad at sin and evil. He's mad at them because they are hurting you. He came to crush them because he loves you so much. God's wrath is not against us, it's against evil. Think about it, did he tell Adam and Eve when they were in the worst moment of their entire lives when they turned their back on the perfect love of God and the perfect creation that he'd made when they ushered in brokenness and gave in to the influence of evil, did he say, and I will crush your head? No. He said, I will crush evil's head. Even when we choose it, he's coming for evil and sin. It's not coming To hurt us. In Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, he says the fight is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities and the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil. Jesus didn't come to shed the blood of humanity. He came to shed his own blood, right? I believe this is the biblical understanding of atonement. Earlier in that letter to the Ephesian church, Paul says it like this, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. That's like saying that we were all giving in to that influence of evil. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but... We were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved, y'all. We were deserving of wrath because of our choice to turn our backs on the love of God and embrace the influence of evil, but God had no wrath for us. better I want to go back to that text for a second put that back on the screen if it's not on there already all of us have been doing that we have all lived among them at one time we have all given in to the influence of evil we have all tried that We have all lived that life, and because we have all lived that life, we have all been deserving of wrath, but God had no wrath for us, only love. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we turned our backs on him, even when we were dead in our transgressions, even on our worst day, he came to make us alive in Christ. His great love for us compelled him to put on flesh to come to earth. His anger against evil compelled him to do battle with it. That's what happened on the cross. God in Christ invites evil to use its ultimate weapon against him, death. Pastor and author Tim Mackey puts it like this, Jesus let evil exhaust its power on him using its only real weapon, death. Jesus knew that God's love and life were even more powerful and that he could overcome evil. Something changed that day. When Jesus defeated evil, he opened up a new way. Man, isn't that good? Jesus overcomes evil's ultimate weapon by rising from the dead, demonstrating once and for all that good is more powerful than evil that God is more powerful than Satan and that love is more powerful than hate. This is the love that God has for us. This is the love that God has for you. The point of this entire series is to help us understand God's great love and then make it the foundation upon which we build our entire lives. We love because he first loved us. I know a lot of you guys pretty well. And even the ones that I don't, I know that in us is this desire, if you're a Christian, to live like Christ. That's what Christian means, little Christ. But so many of us are like, how do I do that? I don't understand. I I don't have the power. I don't have the example. I don't know what to do. We love only because he first loved us. Without this understanding of the love of God, nothing else matters. If this love is not the foundation upon which everything else is built, the house that we build will be faulty without God's love as a foundation. And this is really, really good news. But as we wrap up this morning, I want to share with you how God's love doesn't just change our identity, it actually changes our actions too. That's exactly what John says as he brings this passage to a close. Verse 11 Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. Listen, he has given us his spirit. He has given us his spirit. This right here is the key to everything. This is the difference between God's love just being a comforter when we're having a hard day and God's love actually changing everything about our lives. This is how we take it from theoretical to practical. John says, since God so loved us, we should also love one another. But how do we have the power to do that? Because this God who is love has given us his spirit, This is why Jesus told his followers that it's actually better that he leaves and goes back to his father in heaven because when he does, he will send his spirit to them. That's an incredible statement. Jesus, God in Christ, God in the flesh, looks at his closest friends and he says, it's better that I leave you because I'm sending my spirit to you. You see, the only thing better than God standing next to you is God living inside of you, right? The only thing better than visiting the temple and seeing God's presence there is when we're the temple and God's presence lives in us. John goes on, explains it more. Verse 16. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. God lives in them through his spirit. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. So back to what we talked about a little while ago, we are now able to live the human life in the way that God intended. We're able to walk down that new path that Jesus hacked away because he has given us his spirit. In this world, we are like Jesus because through his spirit, Jesus lives in us. John ends once more by making it clear that this is not a fear-based relationship between God and humanity. This is not some pagan God who requires atonement just so that he's not super mad at us anymore. He isn't mad at us, he loves us. Verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love and then finally, we love because he first loved us. That's the foundation. We love because he first loved us. Back in August, some of you were here. We kicked off something we are calling our year in the greatest commandment. And it's just a simple way of saying we are spending the entire next year, all of this fall and all of spring Diving deeply into what Jesus said is of ultimate importance, what he said is the greatest commandment, and that is love God and love others. And we chose to start off this year in the greatest commandment with this five-week series we're bringing to a close today, this deep dive into understanding and embracing the love of God and the presence of the Holy Spirit within us because we simply cannot fulfill the greatest commandment without that. We love because he first loved us. And I hope over this entire series that you have grown to understand that this isn't just any run of the mill kind of love that God loves us with. This love forged a new way to be human. This is the love that cared for the broken, that made the marginalized feel seen, that tore down the religious walls and welcomed everyone into the family of God. This is the love that fed the hungry, that set the slaves free. This is the love that was more powerful than death. This is the love that was victorious over evil. That, my friends, is the love that indwells and empowers me and you. If you have placed your faith in Jesus, he has put his spirit in you. And if God is love, and his spirit is in us, then this love that has done all of these things now empowers us to live the life of loving God and loving others that he has called us to. We love because he first loved us. My hope and prayer is that you come to know and rest in this perfect love of God and then allow it to empower you through the spirit within you, to love God and to love others. Does that make sense? Give me a nod if it makes sense. All right, I'm gonna pray. God, thank you for, thank you for the letter of 1 John. Thank you for the clarity with which John writes, with which you inspire him to write. The clarity that says that love is not just something that you do, but love is who you are. And this is how we know. Because Jesus, God in Christ, came to earth, forged a new way to be human. He hacked against that overgrown jungle of sin and evil that we welcomed into the world. And he showed us God's original design for what it means to be a person, what it means to be an image bearer. He fixed all the effects and brokenness of sin that he encountered, and then he went to the cross, flipping this pagan idea of halosmos on its head, showing us really what atonement means when it's done by a God who is love, that you're not mad at us, that you love us, I wanna pray, God, over this group of people, the exact same prayer that Paul prayed in a, for that Ephesian church that we've been reading about. He said, I pray that you have the power to understand as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep Jesus's love is. May you Experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. God, make that prayer true in our hearts. May we experience the depth of your love. And even though we can't understand it fully, God, help us to embrace it fully. Help it to be our foundation. Help us to understand that we love because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray.